You are now listening to the August 14th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have The Seven Signs, A Sermon, and The God of Abraham. First, let's begin with The Seven Signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with The Seven Signs. The four books of the Gospel offer an account of Jesus in terms of what Jesus did and taught during his ministry on earth. The book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke recorded Jesus' ministry with a focus on Jesus as the Messiah, and they are called the Synoptic Gospels because they share a common perspective. In contrast, the book of John is written with a focus on Jesus as God himself. It witnesses that Jesus is the Son of God who is equal to God himself. Consequently, the book of John includes many signs that are not recorded in the Synoptic Gospels and speaks to us about Jesus as the Son of God through those signs. The signs of making water into wine and the healing of the man by the pond of Bethesda appears only in the book of John. Yet, there are signs recorded in all four Gospels. Among them is the sign that stands out prominently, and many of us must have heard about it already. It is the sign of feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. We will share that sign today. The feeding of the 5,000 is a unique sign recorded in all four Gospels, However, there are some differences in how this miracle is portrayed between the book of John and the other three books of the Synoptic Gospels. Just as the sign of the healing of the man by the pond of Bethesda was focused on not the healing itself, but on the conversation with the Jews subsequent to the healing. In the book of John, the focus of the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 was also on the conversation between the Jews and Jesus after the miracle was performed. The true meaning of this sign is disclosed starting from John chapter 6, verse 22. There, we find a group of people searching for Jesus after experiencing the feeding of 5,000 in the region of Bethsaida. Apparently, Jesus had withdrawn himself from the crowd and went to Capernaum, People then followed him to Capernaum on boats. When the crowd finally caught up with him, Jesus did not commend them for seeking him. There were no words of encouragement for their effort. Instead, he responded with rather harsh words. The truth can sound harsh. This is what Jesus said in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. That is right. These people sought Jesus to make him king, and the reason why they wanted to make him their king was because they sensed an opportunity. They witnessed how Jesus could feed them without them having to work. Perhaps they thought Jesus could do that for them if he became king. Their seeking Jesus was focused more on filling their stomach. In today's modern world, 
There are still people who do work to eat, but there are also people who work to reach their dreams or to attain happiness by doing what they like doing. However, during the time of Jesus, most people did not work to achieve their dreams or to attain happiness. They had to work to feed themselves. According to the Talmud that contains Judaic wisdom, written during the time of the Babylonian captivity, there is a verse that says, Jewish people will eat plentifully when the Messiah comes. That is why people believe Jesus was the Messiah after witnessing the miracle of feeding of the 5,000. And that is why people said in John chapter 6, verse 14, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. However, the problem was they called Jesus the Messiah and followed him only as someone who could give them food to eat and meet their physical needs, but not as the Son of God who can save them from their sins and help them gain eternal life. That is why Jesus told them rather harshly, the reason you are seeking me is not because you saw the sign of me being the Son of God, but only because you ate the bread and became full and want to be full again. So to help them understand, Jesus started to explain to them about the spiritual bread that only he could fill them with. First, Jesus told them in verse 27, not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts eternally. Then Jesus revealed himself to them that he could give such food to them and that he is the one that God the Father had sent for them. People did not fully comprehend what Jesus was saying and demanded Jesus to give them a sign so that they could believe in him. They used the example of the sign of Moses feeding people with manna in the wilderness and demanded him to show them a similar sign. Then Jesus pointed out their lack of understanding and tried to help them gain a proper perspective. Here are the latter parts of verse 32 and verse 33. It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is speaking of the spiritual food, but the people were confined in their own understanding of what food meant. To them, all food had to be something that could be physically consumed, and they demanded such food. Jesus, of course, was talking about the spiritual food. Jesus revealed in verse 36 that he is the bread of life, and he told them whoever comes to him will not hunger, and whoever believes in him will never thirst. Jesus proclaims in verses 37 to 40 that he will certainly not cast out anyone who comes to him and will not lose anyone in the will of God. He will raise them up on the last day. Here is a recap of what Jesus is telling us. Jesus is telling us that he will give eternal life to those who come to him and that once we attain eternal life, we will never go hungry or thirsty. He will not lose anyone who comes to him, and we will have eternal life through resurrection. And all this will be fulfilled through him. 
When we eat food, it goes into our stomach and gets digested. Nutrients become a part of our body, and the remains are expelled. So eating food also means we are eating nutrients that could become part of our body. Eating Jesus's flesh and drinking his blood have the same meaning. He comes into us to become part of our being. We are in him, and he is in us. Thus, he and we become one. Jesus is telling us that this is how we can have eternal life. The sign of Jesus feeding five thousand people with five loaves of bread and two fish is not just about God feeding us just for our bodily needs, as God sustained the people of Israel with manna during the life of wilderness. It is also about how He will allow us to have eternal life. This feeding of the five thousand is the sign that demonstrates Jesus is the true bread that God sent for us. So Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me." And I in Him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So He who eats me, He also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These are the verses from fifty-three to fifty-eight in John chapter six. Through this sign of the feeding of five thousand. I hope we discover Jesus as the true bread that can satisfy our spiritual hunger. He is the Messiah that was sent to save the world, so we can find true fulfillment and satisfaction in Jesus. This concludes today's episode from Signs of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Sorrows deep, I call. When my hope is shaken, torn and ruined from the fall, hear my desperation. For so long I've pled and prayed. God, come to my rescue. Even so, the thorn remains. Troubled soul, questions without answers. On my faith, these pillows roll. God, be now my shelter. Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in Him who saves you. When the fires have all grown cold. This heart to praise you.
Should my life be torn from me Every worldly pleasure When all I possess is grief God be in my treasure Be my vision in the night Be my hope and refuge Till my face is turned to side Lord, my heart will praise you. And oh, my soul, put your hope in God. My help, my rock, I will praise Him. Sing, oh, sing through the raging storm. You're still my God, my salvation. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Don't Be Like the Dog. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Now, one thing that you know about the nature of Christianity, if you've been around Christians for any time, is that it's possible to be visibly present amongst the people of God, and yet spiritually far from them. It's possible for you to profess Christ, to have some knowledge of Jesus and the things of the Bible, and yet not to know the Christ of the Bible. And I sent sorrow over this, but I also want to think biblically about it. I don't remember the Bible using language like de-churched or unchurched. The Bible speaks more of internal heart reality, spiritual realities. And Peter uses different language. And I remember this true knowledge series as we look at 2 Peter 2, 17 to 22 this morning. He is looking at a similar kind of reality. False teachers who have walked away from Christ and are looking to lure others away. And as Peter has approached death, He was writing this letter, as you'll remember, to his and future generations who were in danger of being led away. Now, notice first that we're told in verse 17, the false teachers are waterless springs and moving mists with gloomy reservations. You get three images there that just begin this little series. Now, a desert-dwelling Phoenician... We all know that we can relate to the desperation, the desperate need for water, right? But imagine that you're running to this water source and the spring that's promising water, and it does not deliver. 
isn't there a sense that not only does it leave you wanting, but you kind of in a sense want it more than before you saw and had hope that was disappointed? It's almost as though this water source makes grand promises that get you excited and hopeful, and then you show up and there's nothing there. And notice the second image. It's notoriously hard to understand, but I think it's related. They are mist driven by a storm. Now, Jude 12 uses a, a kind of similar image. It talks about these rainless clouds. And I think the idea is similar here. It kind of relates to that previous image. It's this visible mist that promises water to a parched earth, but it never touches down. The, the wind drives it away. And what it does is end up dashing the hopes of those who desperately needed water for their crops. See, false teachers look like springs that promise desperately thirsty souls. Promises them life-giving waters, but they leave them thirstier than when they began to listen. Don't miss this. Christians know and love God's voice in God's Word. Jesus' sheep know and love the voice of the Good Shepherd. Now there's a warning. Don't miss this. Here, in these verses... It is possible to enjoy and use God's word and still yet not be saved. Again, I am not trying to fear monger, but we're going to see in this text, we need to be aware of the fact there's a kind of illumination and knowledge that draws us near, but we still yet don't have faith in Christ alone. See, we as humans, we we need to be aware of the fact that we must not be merely hearers and even speakers of the word, but doers also. That we should be transformed and shaped and changed by the power of God's Word. Yet, I don't know who needs to hear this, but I pray that our church spends at least as much time delighting in God's Word as discerning it. See, as our nature changes the way that we view God and His Word, it should change along with it. There's a new value. There's something inside that changes. Because take note, at the time of the nation of Judah's demise. Remember the people of God, they had been separated between Judah and Israel. Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria. Later, we find that Babylon is coming for Judah, and Jeremiah is living during the last days of Judah. And in Jeremiah 2.13, we find God warning his people. And Yahweh declares this judgment to them. He says, for my people have committed two evils. Listen to this. I think you'll see how it relates. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that do not hold water. There God goes on to explain that His people apostatized. They left the faith. They left trusting God, living for Him. They left following the voice of God, the Redeemer, who redeemed them out of slavery, literal slavery in Egypt. And they returned to the bondage of idolatry. To humans, we will worship something. That's what God tells us. We were created for worship. We're going to worship something. There is something that is going to control us with our love, with our affections. It's going to change and shape the decisions that we make and the way that we live. Now, I'm not arguing that today. I'm just asserting it. Either you will worship the true God and his word as a life-giving fountain of living or flowing waters, or you will settle for worshiping the good things that God has made. Those things, those good things that are from God will start to shape your identity more than being part of the people of God. Your nationality 
your political allegiance, your race, your food, your drink, your sex, your sports, anything will begin to shape your identity more than your God. It's not the way that God made it. See, man-made gods, they are wells with lots of leaks. If you're looking to make man-made wells your source of living water, then my guess is that today you are thirsty. Thirsty like somebody stranded in the desert. Spiritual thirst is a good indication of the fact that we aren't drinking deeply from Christ. But did you catch the mixed metaphor in verse 17? I don't think it's an accident. Notice that he ends by saying, false teachers don't just leave us thirsty, they have reservations in the gloom of utter darkness. Now, I wonder if Peter switches images here really just to launch our attention to the last day. Like he's been talking about thirst today, and he says, I want today's thirst to remind you of the last day reservation that's reserved for false teachers. Notice, Peter points them to the last day when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And it's a day when these false teachers, they will be sent to the gloomy darkness. This is an opposite image of what we find of all believers in 1 Peter 2.9. You remember that image. It's glorious. We are those as Christians who have been rescued out of darkness and delivered into what? His marvelous light. That's our reality. And yet here, the future for these folks is not light but darkness. These are apostate teachers destined for the gloom of utter darkness. These false teachers have a reservation in hell along with the demons. It is dark days ahead for these false teachers. False teaching, you might think to yourself that it is not a big deal. But according to Peter, it is a massive deal that has eternal implications. But notice, it looks as though the four in verses 18 to 19 that begins that section, signals that Peter is explaining this metaphor. So look with me. Notice in verses 18 to 19. Second, the false teachers, he says, lure new converts with promises of freedom. They're luring new converts with promises of freedom. Now, Peter opens this section speaking of the false teachers, saying, for speaking loud boasts of folly. Now, this word for speaking, it's the same word that was used to describe what the donkey did back in verse 16. You remember the donkey that talked? Balaam's donkey? Well, he spoke there. But the donkey's words saved a life, and we find that these these false teachers are actually looking to take a life. See, Peter is combining three words to describe what they're doing as they speak. And I would translate these words roughly, they were loud, they were proud, and they were futile. They were loud, proud, and futile. They speak loudly, with great craft and confidence, not in God's word, but in themselves, in their own powers of rhetoric. And their words are actually, you'll notice, folly, a word for emptiness or vanity. So they, the words are attractive. They strike you and they draw you in, and yet, upon closer review, you figure out there's no substance here. Peter says that they are trying to draw in others to listen to their empty teachings. Now, their teaching appears superficially attractive, but it's spiritually empty. Their words promise life, but they end in death. It's really much like a fisherman who is throwing out bait with a hook to catch a fish. But who is it that they're fishing for in verse 18? And what bait are they using in verse 19? Well, you'll notice in verse 18, the false teachers lure new converts. 
Now, we've seen this word for entice that he uses at the beginning before. It's the same word for luring. Now, by this time, I don't know that it still carried this fishing metaphor, but it is a good image for the nature of what enticing means. It's like they're trying to fish for these folks. And though it might not mean the same thing here, it's a good image to describe what they're doing in their enticing. Peter says they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. That word for sensual, we've seen it before. It means a kind of self-abandoned meant to desires, giving yourself over to the wants of your life. And often it carries a sexual meaning, but it can also speak to giving yourself to any desire, like food or drink or another pleasure pursuit. We're told in the scriptures that everything is supposed to be about God. And think about it. Paul says whether you eat or drink, the very basic necessities of life, whether you do either of those things, you need to do them to what? The glory of God. And some of you are thinking, I don't know how to hold my water bottle so that it maximizes the glory of God. But the idea is, is that there's nothing that we do outside of the purposes and intents of bringing glory to him and exercising self-control and joy and gratitude. But catch this, God created you and me for something more than satisfying our momentary appetites. You weren't made for the just next five minutes or the next day or the next week. We were made for eternity. He created us to glorify and enjoy our good creator God forever. As you've likely heard, God's good gifts make bad gods, but who was he speaking of particularly here in our text? He, he mentions those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Who are these who are barely escaping? Well, don't miss this. I, I think the false teachers target new converts. I think that's what Peter's trying to tell us. Think about this. These false teachers are smart fishermen. And they are looking to catch and lead away from Christ new believers. It's pretty bad, right? There's a variant that's used by the King James Version. If you've got one of those, uh, it says something a little bit different. It says they are those who fully escaped in the past. But I think the ESV rightly understands the escaping that is describing these people as present participle, meaning that they are those who not barely, but recently, they are still in the process of escaping the entanglements of living in error, which describes a pagan lifestyle. They are those who were part of the people who were not part of the people of God. Now they have begun to associate themselves with the people of God, yet there is still, there is there's some time that it's taking for them to live like this people and not that people. And they are growing in that. They're new converts in the process of leaving their old ways of life to follow Christ. And there is a sense in which we are always called to put off the old man and put on the new. But here we find the beginnings of someone that appears to have spiritual life. I'm just wondering this morning, do you know if you're the kind of person, the kind of Christian that a false teacher like this would target? Maybe not in person, maybe online. Are you the kind of person that they would dangle the bait of asking you to actually question pastors that actually love and know you or doctrines that are historic to the faith to entice you to lead you away from the true and living Christ? But notice the way that 
they bait their hooks in verse 19. Did you see that? The false teachers promise freedom, but are enslaved. This is the kind of teaching that, that's attractive. Now, see if you hear the irony of the doctrinal teaching of these false teachers in verse 19. It says, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now, here we get a little bit of a snapshot of the doctrine they are teaching. It is headlined as freedom. And you might ask yourself, well, freedom from what? I like freedom in general, so what kind of freedom are they selling? Well, some have suggested that they are offering freedom from fear of spiritual beings. And we've seen a lot of talk about spiritual beings thus far. But some have said it's freedom from fear of Jesus' final return when he comes back. And so yet others have said it's freedom from any kind of requirements to honor Christ morally in the decisions we make and the way that we live. Well, this could be a crowd, these false teachers who were manipulating Paul's teaching. You'll remember that Paul talks about freedom. It was back in Galatians 5.1 that he said it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And maybe they just stopped it right there. Because he goes on to say, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. See, Peter does not later say that Paul's teaching, he does go on to say that Paul's teaching is difficult. It might be that they had a misunderstanding of doctrine itself. Catch this. That's a way that bad doctrine works a lot. They're appealing to scripture, but they're misusing it. We can't be for sure, but I take it that given Peter's discussion thus far, he's talking about freedom from moral constraint. You can live how you want. And connected to that, why can you live how you want? Because Jesus is not the judge who's going to hold you account on the last day. There's no, there's no accountability that's coming. But notice what they promise. They promise freedom while it says they themselves are slaves of corruption. Now, corruption is an interesting word. It can mean physical corruption or here of moral corruption, the same word for depravity. Now, he explains that Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now, Doug Moo observes here, he's a commentator, he says this, Peter reinforces the point by quoting a proverb, a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Now, to be overcome is to be conquered, subjugated, made a slave to another. You'll remember that Peter opened his letter in chapter 1, verse 1, calling himself Peter, who was what? A slave of Jesus. Now that's the same word that is used here, doulos, for slave of corruption. Peter says, you can either, you listen to me, you can either be a slave of Christ, or you can be a slave of corruption. Those are kind of the two options, the two ways to live. Not really a middle road here, like these are the two options. Peter says, I'm a slave of Christ. Now, the Bible teaches that corruption entered the world when the first man, Adam, sinned against God. He disobeyed his voice, and it subjugated every part of us. This is true for everybody in this room. When Adam fell, we all inherited a sin nature such that it affected every part of us, our minds. We don't think like we should. I think we have plenty of proof of that. Our wills, we don't want we should want. Our, our emotions, we don't get emotional in the ways we ought to about the things we should. And even our physical bodies are under corruption. They are decaying 
and dying. We live in a, a broken world that is hostile towards God. That's what corruption describes. And that's why David says in Psalm 51.5 that it is in sin that his mother conceived him. It's not saying that it was a sinful way that she had him, but he literally was born into sin. He was a sinner by nature and by choice. And every human is born in Adam. And sin affects the way that we think, the moral choices we make, our emotions, and our physical bodies, which are dying day by day. How do I know that? Because everybody dies. That's how we know that everybody has been affected by sin. See, we still bear God's image, but it is marred by sin. Paul, I think, explains this well in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, as he is thinking about life before and after Christ. And he says this to the Ephesian Christians, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, listen, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We've all inherited that sin nature from Adam and, and are depraved. Now don't miss this. First, if you are not growing, in maturity. And I'm not just talking about maturity in your knowledge of doctrine, but maturity in your life and your moral excellence to look more like Jesus. If you're not submitting more and more to Him as years go by, and I'm not saying it's not clunky, but there is growth that you can discernibly see. There is growth that others can discernibly see. If that's not you, then what that means is, catch this, you're spiritually dead. That's not Pastor Josh, that's Jesus. Trees that are connected to the true root produce fruit. And those that do not will be cut down and burned on the last day. So if you're amongst the people of God, and you are hearing the things of God, and you think maybe you're safe because you're attending church, and you're present, and maybe you're even a member, and maybe you've even remembered verses, and, and there are all kinds of things that point to, yeah, maybe this is the kind of person that is safe. And yet what we find is if there's no fruit of moral excellence and change in your life, Jesus says we're hopeless. Second, you're either a slave of Christ destined for life or you're a slave of corruption destined for hell. So Peter is not mincing words. He's super clear. Only Christ can deliver on the freedom, joy, meaning, and eternal life that God created us for. There's nowhere else to go. There are many cisterns that people have hewn for themselves all over the place. Cisterns of sex and power and money. Saints football always leaves me discouraged. There are all kinds of things that we put, humans put their hopes in. Dumb things. Food. Things that God made. Things that we've made. And every one of those things, all of those sources at the end of the day, leave us thirsty. It's only Christ that can bring us true freedom. Freedom from a world that's dying, that's decaying, that's destined for death and destruction. See, many like today are like these false teachers. And it grieves me. People that I, I looked up to, that I wanted to be like when I grew up. You know, Josh Harris renounced his faith on YouTube. Abraham Piper is denying Christ on TikTok. I'm not sure exactly what TikTok is. But he went there to deny his faith. They are actually 
inviting other young quasi-spiritual people to follow them out of following Christ and his people according to the scriptures. They are preaching a kind of gospel of freedom, saying you can live how you want, do what you want, and not follow Christ with your moral lives. They're encouraging others to de-church, which I don't like that word. Let me just encourage you, don't follow them to hell. Those who have the true faith will look more and more like the morally excellent Christ. You will look more and more like the morally excellent Christ as you follow him, as you give yourself to him. So pray, pray for men like these, for their salvation, because they are in more danger than you know. Did you catch what it says about false teachers like this in verses 20 to 21? It's terrifying. It says apostasy is worse than never knowing the way. Now this is a tough text. Notice, first, apostasy leaves the false teachers worse than better before. Notice what it says in verse 20. As you look there, we need to answer some questions. First, we need to identify who's Peter talking about Who's the they that have escaped the defilements of this world? Now, it could be the, the new unstable converts that the false teachers were trying to lure away in verse 18. But I think it's more likely that it's speaking of those false teachers from verse 19, just before it. It's those who Peter says have reservations in the gloomy darkness in verse 17. Now, a second question we have to ask is, what does Peter mean when he says they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And then later, he says they are again entangled in them and overcome. That seems like two interesting images. They have escaped, and then they are entangled again. Now, you might ask if these false teachers lost their salvation. You know, once they had knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but now they do not see Jesus as Lord of their moral lives, and therefore they do not have him as Savior from the eternal judgment that awaits those outside of Christ. But what's going on? In what way did they have a knowledge? Or were they escaping through this knowledge? Well, knowledge, I believe, is a word in the New Testament that often points to the new covenant promises that we were given in Jeremiah 31. There we were promised new hearts, that God would write his law on our hearts and that his people would know the Lord. So how did those who knew the Lord or were in the process of knowing the Lord get off the hook, as it were, and then get re-entangled and conquered by the world? Doesn't the Bible teach something like, you've heard, once saved, always saved? Is, is that what this is sort of teaching against? Well, this is where I think we need to nuance our doctrine a little bit. For one, there is a kind of enlightenment or knowledge about Jesus that, that visibly identifies us with a, a local church, a new covenant community, that should not be mistaken for a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, I think this stands as a strong warning, these verses, to false teachers and those young in the faith as well who might be tempted to follow them. It is possible to profess saving faith. To get baptized, join a church, know scripture, and even teach, and yet be far from God. So you can be visibly part of God's people, but still lack the, the invisible reality it points to of being united to Christ by faith. You can be physically present, but spiritually dead. A member of a local church, but not a member of the heavenly Jerusalem. Now there's a second nuance, I just want to be careful here. And that's that for once saved, always saved, it says that those who truly know Jesus in a saving way, 
only have to at some point say, I did believe, but there was never any evidence. I don't think that's at all what Peter says throughout this letter. I think that what he is saying is that those who truly know Jesus in a saving way persevere to the end. That's one of the surest indicators of saving faith. I fear for people. People I love who have walked away from the faith. You you probably have brothers and sisters, friends uh, that you love that have walked away from the faith. And it is something that, that is heartbreaking. Some of these folks even post their apostasy on social media for the world to see, knowing that they've hardened their hearts against God and that that brings about greater judgment on the last day. We need to be broken over this. But notice also, he says in verse 22, apostatizing teachers, they look like dogs and pigs, not God. We, we were made to image God. That's what Genesis 1 says. God created us to image him, but Peter, he uses two parables, one of a dog and one of a pig, to describe them in verse 22. Notice what he says. What that true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. See, the, these images it give you a vision of what dogs do. What pigs do. Dogs return to their vomit. Pigs return to the mud. And why do they do that? Because it's their nature. That's the reason that a pig runs to the mud and the reason that a dog goes and and eats its throat. You don't have to discipline him for that. You can. You can train him not to. But left to himself, that's what he does. It's their nature as a part of a corrupt world. They, They love the vomit and the dirt. And this is the truth about us apart from Christ. We love corruption. We love sin. But if we have true faith, we we love Jesus. We love Jesus' people. We love God's Word. We love prayer. We obey Jesus because we love Him and trust that obedience is Good for us. It's our nature. It's our new nature. See, we began with the false teachers as waterless streams with reservations in hell. God warned his people in Jeremiah's day of forsaking the fountain of living or flowing waters that give life. But Jesus, Jesus comes later. The king of Judah. And in John 7, 37 to 39, he says this. If anyone is thirsty, are you thirsty? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Do you catch this? These, these false teachers, they are, they are dry cisterns. They have nothing to offer. They are empty. But if we have come to Christ and drunk deeply from him, then what that means is that the teaching and the things that we talk about will be Christ-centered and Christ-saturated and life-giving. Now this is what Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, but Jesus was not yet glorified, but He has been glorified at the cross, and we have received the Spirit, and so we, we are those who are called to bring forth the mighty waters of Christ. Catch the good news. Jesus came and drank the cup of God's wrath for you and for me. He became forsaken for us that we might not have to be forsaken anymore for forsaking the fountain of living waters, but that we might drink, drink deeply and be forgiven. And Jesus says, when we drink of him by faith, our dead, dry hearts become a garden and a fountain that flow with life for others. 
We will be vessels and instruments of grace in the lives of others if we have met this Christ. Our nature changes. We seek to be led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. We are destined for restoration and not corruption and death. Our reservations, they are with God in heaven forever, not with demons in hell. Let me close with a a few applications first. If you're struggling with assurance of faith today, let me just encourage you to ask yourself why. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his little book on um, spiritual depression. He says that he always begins, if somebody's struggling spiritually, with asking them, have they gotten enough sleep? Sometimes a good nap will make you feel better about your relationship with Jesus. That's true life testimony. I can affirm that. Second, are you living in unrepentant sin? Are there ways that you are sinning that you have not repented? Is it a surprise to you, if you do have the Holy Spirit, that you would not feel like all is right, that all is well with your soul. You have made for more. You've not been made for the corruption. You've been made for Christ. Are you praying, meeting with God's people, reading God's word, giving faithfully, seeking to be a blessing rather than seeking to consume all that you can get yourself? Are you confessing and repenting? You know, if those are things that you're not doing, then confess and repent those things and trust that God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Third, are you trusting your own works more than Christ? You know, maybe the reason that you are not tasting and seeing the goodness of Christ today is because you still are distracted by your own works, your own righteousness, your own efforts. And you have not seen yet that you are hopelessly, desperately thirsty apart from Christ. You must drink Him in. Fourth, are you careful about who you listen to? Are you spending too much looking to other shallow, empty cisterns on social media? Are are you drinking, are you trying to drink all day long from sources that do not satisfy? And then you're wondering why at home, when you get home at nights, you're an empty well. Also, Christian, realize that you can look and, and act like a Christian and yet not be one. I mean, our text is, is clearly saying that. You, you can clearly be in that, that group of visible, identifiable people and yet not truly have faith. If you're not growing, you're not just dying, you're dead. Good trees produce good fruit. Fourth, faithful church membership is a great way to show the surety of our faith and to increase our assurance. And one thing that we ought to be doing is trying to encourage one another that we truly are believers if we are truly believers. Showing evidences of grace in one another pointing out things that we might not see ourselves, both good things and bad things, so that we might grow in Christ. Didn't you want to know, wouldn't you want to know if you had reservations in hell? I would. Don't you want to know if you do? We, we don't de-church. We're either a church or not. And the church is a great place to reveal the trueness of what you are. Now, let me just say really clearly, I trust that everybody who's a part of this church is regenerated alive in Christ, destined for heaven. But I'm not surprised every once in a while when somebody comes and says, I thought I knew Jesus, but I didn't. I'm just glad they do today. And if you're not a Christian, know that your great desire for freedom is only found in Christ. He rescues you not just from a corrupt world, but from corrupt desires. And He has made you for so much more. And if you're not living for Christ, it's not 
living, it's death. So he made you for himself. And I want to encourage you, if you've not drunk from Christ today, if you don't know the water that we speak, don't leave without talking to myself or another Christian about how you can put your faith in Christ and live forever with him. Let's pray together. Listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, 
we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcasts on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from The God of Abraham. Last time, we shared the story from Genesis 14 of the war between Abraham and the allied army of the five kingdoms. Abraham was victorious despite the odds being against him and being seemingly humanly impossible to achieve a victory. However, Abraham meets Melchizedek and soon realizes that it was God who delivered his enemies into his hand. Because of this, Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils. There is something we should consider here. A lot of people look at this and believe that this is the start of the tithe. But Abraham did not know God well enough yet. Tithe exists not only in the Bible. We should not have such misunderstanding. The ritual of giving a tenth of all is a tradition that exists widely in the Middle East in those days. According to scholars, giving a tenth of what people possess is a ritual that was widely practiced in Canaan, Phoenicia, Arab, Cathargo, Lydia, and other areas. So, giving a tenth of the possessions to another person means that the person who is giving the tenth belongs to the person receiving it. In other words, it means that the receiver rules over the giver. It also means that the giver will follow the receiver's will and accept it. So, when Abraham gave the tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek, he was giving it as an acceptance of what Melchizedek said about how God had given the victory to Abraham. That the reason he won the war was not because Abraham was strong, but that God made the way for him to win. Therefore, he must praise God Most High. Now today, we are going to continue the story in Genesis chapter 15. Here is Genesis chapter 15 verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. When do you think after these things is? That is when Abraham realized God allowed him to win the war against the allied army. God was the possessor of heaven and earth. God Most High was protecting him. After Abraham went through these events, the Bible says the Lord came to him in a vision. This is a very important phrase in the Old Testament because this phrase only appears in the books of the prophets such as Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jonah, Haggai, and Zechariah. According to these books, God's word repeatedly appeared to these specific prophets. But such vision appears only once in Genesis and it is in Genesis chapter 15 verse 1. So, theologians interpret this verse as the Bible describing Abraham as a prophet. And as a matter of fact, God called Abraham a prophet himself in Genesis chapter 20. So, Abraham was having a special experience as a prophet now. When the word of God appeared in a vision to Abraham, 
God told him not to fear. Why do you think God said that to Abraham? What do you think Abraham feared about? This is what I think. When he heard that Lot was captured, his only thought must have been just to save him. But once the war was over, he must have come to realization of how dangerous the war was. When something dire happens to us from time to time, we act on it without much thought. But afterward, when we think about it, we start to tremble at the thought of how dangerous it was. To Abraham, who must have felt fear of what he just accomplished, God was telling him, I am your shield, I will protect you. Do not worry, do not fear. How gracious that God telling Abraham that he was his shield. Who could dare to attack and pierce through that shield when God is the shield? It was a complete protection. When we give this some thought, we will find there is another principle of faith. That is, when God said that he was Abraham's shield, God was acknowledging that there will be attacks from the world. God is telling him not to fear. God was revealing to him that he would be attacked and hated by the world because he did not belong to the world. He is saying, there is no need to fear, for I will be your shield. This is a principle of faith that applies to all Christians. Sometimes, many of us who believe that since we believe in Jesus, nothing bad will happen to us. However, it is not that God does not allow bad things to happen to us, but rather that He will protect us, becoming our shield when bad things do happen to us. Like this, God told Abraham that He was His shield and then told him that His reward shall be very great. Abraham responded to this, and this was the first description of Abraham talking to God for the first time. Abraham did not say anything to God until now. Till then, only God spoke to Abraham and gave him promises. We can see what Abraham must have been thinking all this time from what he said in Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. This is what Abraham said to God for the first time but he sounds like he was a little bit resentful. To that, God spoke to him as follows in verses 4 and 5. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to them, And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. It would have been great if God told Abraham everything in detail, but it feels like God was withholding something. We must carefully look at this development. When God called Abraham for the first time, God told Abraham that God will make him a great nation in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was with Lot at the time. So Abraham thought Lot was his heir. But God told Abraham that Lot was not his heir and separated them. Then God appeared to Abraham again and told him that he was going to give the land to him and his descendants forever. But when he thought deeper and deeper about it, because he did not have any child, Eliezer was the only possible heir. This was the culture during this time in the Near East. When a master did not have a child, the most loved servant became the heir. But God explained to Abraham in more detail. God told Abraham, No, he is not your heir. 
The one who comes from your body will be your heir. I will give you a son of your own. And then God took Abraham outside and showed him the stars in the heavens and promised him that his descendants will be as numerous as countless stars in the heavens. All this time, Abraham wondered if he really would have a child of his own. Because of the culture at the time, he thought Lot would be his heir, but they parted ways. So he thought his servant would be the heir. He was a little bit resentful of God for not giving him a child. But for the first time, God told Abraham specifically, No, no, I will give you a child from your body. Abraham heard very joyful news from God. How do you think Abraham reacted? It is recorded in verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the root of faith. Abraham believed in God telling him that he would give him a child when it was not possible to believe. Abraham believed at the moment what God said about his descendants as being numerous as stars in the heaven. He believed that God could make that happen. Abraham experienced how God protected him all this time, and believed that God would be able to do more than enough. And God considered him righteous on account of his faith. Just as we reach righteousness by believing in Jesus Christ. Abraham believed even though he could not see. We also obtain righteousness through faith even though we cannot see Jesus and cannot see God. Here it says God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Reckoning as righteousness means meeting the standards approved by the standard. Abraham's faith reached God's standard, not only his actions but also his faith. That is, Abraham believed in God and that God would fulfill all the promises made to him. It is the same as how we believe in God's word. We believe that what God said will be fulfilled and God will act according to what he said. When we believe that, we also reach his standard. Now God confirmed again to Abraham who he was. He was reconfirming who he was to Abraham, who now believed in God wholeheartedly. Let's read chapter 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. When Abraham heard that, he asked God in verse 8. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Abraham must have thought about God's promises in various ways. But no matter how hard he thought, what God promised seemed impossible. It must have been difficult for him to fathom how a family from another land could take the land and live in it. So he asked God, How can I know? This was not a question out of disbelief, but a question to gain assurance. To that, God told him that he would give him assurance. That is, making a covenant, a covenant of blood. Here is verse 9. So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. It is said that livestock are at their highest value at their third year. Also, only a single animal was used to make a covenant during that time in the Near East. But five animals being used must mean that this covenant was crucial and important. In the next verse, Abraham cut the animal into halves except the birds. As you may know, this is the ritual of covenant in which two people who are making the covenant walk between the animal halves and promise to keep the covenant. If one should break the covenant, they will become like them. 
Verse 12 tells us that Abraham prepared all this but fell into deep sleep. When God appeared and explained the promise in detail, what would happen in the future specifically? God told him that his descendants would be strangers in a land that was not theirs, where they would be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but God would judge the nation and his descendants would come out with many possessions. God also told Abraham that he would live a long life and go to his fathers in peace, and his descendants would return here in the fourth generation. Though this is a covenant that was made between God and Abraham, it is actually a covenant that God is making unilaterally. Though Abraham is the recipient of the covenant, there was nothing he needed to do. God was going to do everything. It is the same for our faith. God promised us that he will save us through his son's blood. We are the recipients of the covenant. There is nothing we have to do for our salvation to be fulfilled. God does that. We just believe in him and wait until that covenant is fulfilled. God listed the lands that he was giving to Israelites in detail in verses 18 to 21. One area is from the river of Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates. Euphrates River is actually in Babylon. According to scholars, even during the times of Kings David and Solomon, the most prosperous times in Israel history, they did not conquer the land as broad as that. So there are those who see this as a promise that will be fulfilled in the future. I also believe so because there is nothing in God's word that will not be fulfilled. We share Genesis chapter 15 today. Abraham is now much closer to God than ever before. Now he even had conversation with God. We see God's gentleness and delicate touches from how he answered Abraham's puzzlements and questions in detail. I'll see you again next week. Have a blessed week.
are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.